This week on a lively experiment, hundreds of emails released by the Rhode Island Department of Transportation give a timeline of what led up to December's closure of the Washington Bridge. And the police chief in Providence reflects on his first year on the job. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Boston Globe reporter and Rhode Island PBS weekly contributor, Steph Machado, Providence College political science professor, Adam Myers, and political contributor, Don Roach. Welcome into Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. The DOT's release of a tranche of emails surrounding the closure of the Washington Bridge had reporters on Wednesday weeding through the flurry of back and forth communications between engineers and higher ups in the department. It helped fill in some of the gaps to a story that has changed depending on who you talk to. Steph, I don't know whether you drew the long straw or the short straw having to go through this, but this was your assignment. You got to look at all the emails. Yes, and we made this request way back when the bridge closed I think seven weeks ago now and um, we didn't we certainly did not get all of the emails that we asked for or that were exchanged among DOT employees about this bridge but I think what we finally got to see was this very clear email from an engineer on Friday the Friday before the bridge closed saying that there was a critical finding in the Washington Bridge there were rods that had failed and the initial response he received was there's nothing we need to do about it immediately. From the, That's what the DOT said. But by Monday, they were shutting down the bridge. And what was missing from this tranche of emails was what exactly transpired in between the critical finding on Friday and the decision to close the bridge on Monday. And what we do know is that Governor McKee says he wasn't even told about this until Monday. Done. You know, I don't think I'm as concerned about the three-day delay. Sometimes when you find something, it might take you a little bit of time to validate it. But what is really concerning is just Alviti saying it was from some catastrophic event, but now we're, we're hearing that it definitely was more wear and tear. That, to me, really concerns me. Yeah. Adam? Yeah, and you know, I'm thinking about the long-term political consequences of this. You know, it's when, good it's not an election year, right? <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking in December when this all broke, that we would all forget about this by the time 2026 rolled around. But now I'm not so sure, you know, if, for example, it takes years for the bridge to be uh, rebuilt or fixed, as maybe even seems likely at this point. And if the DOJ, you know, gets involved, which, I mean, they're, they're requesting certain documents from the DOT at this point, then this could, you know, end up kind of becoming a very substantial political issue that could affect state politics in a few years. And I'm curious about Director Alvidi's future. We know that thus far, Governor McKee has very staunchly um, defended him. But, you know, to, to Don's point, if it turns out that the DOT was not properly maintaining this bridge and this failure of these rods actually date back to farther than we originally thought. I think there will continue to be questions. I mean, Director Alviti has been 
in charge of maintaining this bridge for the last eight years, and if they have to tear it down and replace the whole thing, I think there will be questions about his future. What I found interesting is, and I don't know why the governor didn't say this before, but he was on a radio interview yesterday with Matt Allen, and he, you know, he got pounded for, why weren't you at that press conference? Why weren't you there that day? Well, now we know why. He didn't really know until that day. So it strikes me the governor's position has changed just a little bit to say, hey, this was their issue and it should have been brought to the governor. Did you that strike you too? Yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll say that. And I think it's credible. Almost I, like, let me get a little distance from this now, right? Right. But listen, the buck stops with the governor. Sure. And, and so, as I said earlier, I think if this drags on for a long time and if com commuters continue to feel the hit, um, this will affect him. Not that he is in a great position right now anyway. Um, and, and there's all these unanswered questions, right? I mean, the, the, what happened between October 8th or December 8th and December 11th? Um, what happened between July, right, when the bridge passed inspection and December, right? I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things that we don't know. It's not clear to me what percentage of Rhode Islanders are paying attention to this at the moment, um, but certainly... You got 100,000 people in the East Bay who are paying very close attention to it. Right. And and so, but but it's kind of, at this point, I, I don't know. I don't live on, on the other side of the bay. I don't traverse 195 on a regular basis. At this point, it's it's kind of a minor inconvenience, I think, right? Um, but, but minor inconveniences over a long period of time can become, you know, major. I don't know if I would call it a minor inconvenience. If it had only taken, you know, a few weeks to, to fix the bridge or if there was a timeline for when the bridge is going to be fixed, then people would say it's a minor inconvenience. But when they, they start out saying it is, it would take a short period of time, but now it's like indefinite to when the bridge is going to be fixed or you might need to like even replace the entire bridge. You start to question like when you're on the road, and I, I travel it sometimes, like is this bridge safe? And then you've got such, such traffic and you're just like, I, I feel for the folks who live on that side of the state because the, the, the governor really needs to provide a sense of calm and a sense of direction. And that's not what we're seeing. But I also think if you're playing basketball for Cranston East or Cranston West or Narragansett or Westerly, and you got to go to Mount Hope or Barrington or East Providence, that's a problem because that throws everybody's So it, it's not just an East Bay thing. It's people we, going back and forth. This is in Boston. We live in a place that doesn't have a lot of traffic. And so even a 20-minute delay in your commute, I mean, our, our lives and our schedules, parents picking their kids up from daycare, I mean, all these things are not really being planned around the fact that you might be sitting in traffic because that's just not the norm. And so even though 20 minutes in the scope of what, what it could be, what it was the first week when the bridge shut down might seem minor, I think it really is causing a lot of hassle in people's lives. And then they're thinking ahead to how much worse is the traffic going to be when they actually start repairing the bridge and closing more lanes yeah. and all of that. And is the taxpayer going to bear the cost? Exactly. Okay. You know, the federal government is interested now because they put in tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> I will say, look, when a, whenever we have reporters on, we kind of geek out on the open record situation. This is a classic example of, just like the Philadelphia fiasco, the emails really tell the story. The other thing, too, is, and I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about this, charging for these emails. Yeah. These mm -hmm. are not printed copies. These are emails. And the other thing is, so, Steph, you can talk about the amounts. The thing that kills me is, where's that money going? You have people in 
employed by a very large agency. It's not like they have to stay overtime and we're paying them. That really bothers me. And that's right. And, and to be clear, what the law allows is not charging for the records, but charging for the hours. It allows, worked. but it doesn't it mandate. It allows, but it doesn't mandate. And when, when records are in the public's interest, which there's absolutely no doubt that these records were, that fee should be waived. And no one should have had to pay for these records period, and the governor's office has now refunded the two news outlets that did have to pay. A number of news outlets did not have to pay, including the Boston Globe. Um, and it's just, I, th there needs to be recognition from the McKee administration that when something is of high public interest, they are paying these people to retrieve these records and they should be released without any fees. What about that? Uh, I suppose it makes sense. I was curious about why um, they charge different media outlets different amounts. Uh, you know, like it was the one, one, I think it was the Journal got charged 450, the Globe got charged 350. What was that about? So, so I initially put in a request that was rather broad, and I was sent an invoice for saying, please pay $450. I then submitted a more narrow request, and my second request, I was told I didn't have to pay anything. Hmm. So I can't speak to exactly what the other outlets requested, but I think what the DOT told them was that their requests were different. They were asking for different documents. But ultimately, we all got the same material, um, and that's another reason why we, people shouldn't have been charged. And I think the DOT is saying we'll be more consistent in the future, but I don't think charging everyone $450 is the answer. Because then, the then you're double dipping. I mean, it, yeah. it, again, you're not paying for the records, you're paying for the time work. So each news outlet shouldn't have to pay for whatever time was worked, you should just waive the fees in these instances. I will tell you, it's also a deterrence, too, for the general public. Now, we're used to kind of going in there and being aggressive. I've paid for APRA requests once in 42 years, and I was doing a story on the Appenog Circulator, uh, what the accidents were. They had a lot of time, and I was willing. I put $100 down, but I saw Kathy Gregg from the Journal tweet. I've never had to pay for public records. Now, uh, yeah. uh, I, I understand that I've sometimes... I've also never paid. Exactly, and why would you when you're, it's a tool to doing your job and it's no extra. Before we move on, just some thoughts on that. I have no idea. To me, all I can think of it, it's government agencies not used to being accountable and not thinking through, like, what, how is this going to look? Right. And, but that's all I can think of. All right. Uh, in some places in the state, you can't get a Republican to run for an office. In Cranston, we have two now who want to be mayor. Uh, the incumbent, Ken Hopkins, is uh, facing a challenge we heard this week from Barbara Ann Fenton Fung. If that name sounds familiar, she is the wife of former mayor Alan Fung. You're right in the middle of Cranston politics, so yeah. kind of set the table for people who may not be in attention, uh, paying attention to this. Are you surprised that both are, are running? I am completely unsurprised okay. that both are running. <laughs> no um, surprise there. None at all. Um, I, I think um, since... Mayor Hopkins has come into office. There's definitely been a lot of questions around some of the moves that he has made. And, and certainly Mayor Fung, you know, is no secret for me is, you know, my favorite politician. And so, um, you know, Barbara Ann is just, um, you know, doing what she has kind of wanted to do um, in terms of running for this position. And she feels like she can do a, a, a really good job. And she feels like that there are things that Mayor Hopkins has has not done as well. So it's going to be it's going to be a battle. It's definitely going to be a battle. I'm fascinated by the breakdown in the relationship between the Fungs and Ken Hopkins because they supported him uh, succeeding Alan Fung as mayor of Cranston. They were they had a joint, you know, election party in in 2020 yeah. and that was when when um, Barbara Ann 
ousted Beat Mattiello, speaker yeah. Nick Mattiello, which is another reason why I don't think anyone should should count her out in this race because she has toppled an incumbent before. Um, but but something happened that ruptured that relationship um, to the point that that she is now primarying him. Yeah, this race, you know, I was on the phone with Steph's colleague, Ed Fitzpatrick, a couple days ago, and he asked me, what's going to be the marquee election in Rhode Island this year? And I kind of scratched my head and I said, well, you know, I think it's actually probably going to be the Cranston mayoral race because there's really not much else going on. There's no, there's not going to be a competitive federal race. There's not going to be a competitive statewide state race. It seems like the big electoral action in Rhode Island is going to be at the local level. And, you know, as a political scientist, I think about the electoral dynamics of this. This election is going to overlap with the presidential election. Um, and, you know, President Biden won Cranston, uh, you know, substantially uh, in 2020, at the same time as Mayor Hopkins, a Republican, defeated mm. his Democratic challenger substantially, right? So that's a... But it show, a, that shows you voters are paying attention. Well, yeah, right? you know, it, I'm impressed. You know, that is a level of ticket splitting that right? we mm -hmm. rarely see in American politics today. And I think it indicates, and, and Don can speak more to this, that the Cranston Republican Party has managed to kind of develop a distinct identity from the National Republican Party. Um, and I think both of these candidates, both Mayor Hopkins and uh, Representative Fenton Fung, kind of have a more kind of moderate reputation. And so... Um, you know, I don't think that necessarily changes this year, but, you know, if they do duke it out during the primary um, and, and, you know, the Republican Party in Cranston comes out weakened, um, that that does open the door for a Democratic candidate. I, I guess it's Councilman Ferry, right? That's, he's, the, he's the presumptive Democratic nominee. That does open the possibility for him win winning the office. Right. And Councilman Ferry was a Republican when he first was elected. I think it was in 2020. I, I ran with him. Um, but the paradox you see there is more, you know, Alan Fung was a very, very popular mayor. And, off, you know, he would kind of buck the trends of the, the presidential politics. And uh, Ken is a former teacher in the, in the Cranston school system. So Coach very well. in the community. Yeah, very yeah. well. And, you know, there's a saying that all politics is local. And so here, you know, Barbara Ann is going to be a formidable opponent. Uh, but also, Mayor Hopkins is also, it's going to be a battle because there are very, a lot of people who, who, who swear by Hopkins and a lot of people who swear by Funk. And so I'm very curious to see how this plays out. Yeah, they had a button I saw somebody posted on social media. Vote it has Alan Fung's face, and it said, "Vote for Alan Fung as first gentleman," which <laughs> they'll, they'll be having him go to go door That's to great. door. Uh, it is hard to believe, but it has been a year since Providence Police Chief Oscar Perez took over for the departing Hugh Clements. Uh, big shoes to fill. Steph uh, did a piece for Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Uh, I encourage you to watch it, and we'll tell you how afterwards. But we're going to play a short clip for you. She had a chance to sit down with the chief to reflect on his first year and to talk about some of the major issues he's been facing. Here's part of that interview. Violent crime rose in the city in 2023 after a historically low year in 2022. There were 54 shootings last year, up from 44 in 2022, and 14 homicides after that number dropped to single digits in 2022. Why do you think that went up and is that the start of an upward trend? Violent crime in the city has, is trending down, overall violent crime. We talk about robberies, shootings, homicides, rapes, trending down for years. So when you look at 14 homicides, 
One is too many. Definitely we were higher this year than last year, but we were still below the average reported yearly since 2010. And so when we look at that data, right, we look at how, do, how does it occur? Um, it's a lot of firearms out there. 86% of the homicides a, a, a firearm was used and 87% of the victims were males between the ages of 18 and 30 of color. So there's young men in our city that are getting killed and they're the ones that are carrying the guns. And it's unfortunate. As a person of color who grew up in this city, it's sad to see that. For me to sit here and tell you I'm going to prevent every homicide that occurs is impossible. But we can mitigate a lot of that stuff by diff having different tactics. And in the past few years, I'll tell you, we, we have seized 312 guns. The most we have seized since 2010. You can watch Theft's entire interview with Colonel Perez on ripbs.org slash weekly or go to the Rhode Island PBS YouTube channel. Steph, Perez just appears to me a guy who's kind of quietly doing his job. I know he's making inroads in the community. He's not flashy, but he carries this certain presence. And I don't know whether you felt that when you talked to him. It came, it came across to me in that interview. Yeah, and I think he's a real, you know, cop's cop. He's been in the department since 1994, really has um, grown in the department, but it is important that he's the first Latino chief because he has a connection to part of the community in Providence that previous chiefs did not have. Maybe they became close with those communities, but he grew up in the Latino community in South Providence and is able to connect and understand um, that community better than former chiefs have been able to do. And you see that in, in, in that clip and his concern for the fact that young men of color are getting involved in violence. Mm. Yeah, you know, the most interesting part of that interview that I saw was the part where um, Steph talked to the chief about the recruitment crisis that the Providence Police Department is facing right now. I mean, what is it, f only 400 applicants yeah. to the police academy where it used to be thousands? They used to get thousands, yep. Yeah, and so what was interesting to me is that, you know, the, the chief didn't seem to have a clear answer about how to get um, the number of applicants up, and he kind of acknowledged, look, this is a national problem. There's been a national decline in the, num the number of young people who want to be police officers. It seems related, at least in part, to the uh, police brutality protests in 2020. Um, and, um, you know, so this is going to be a long-term problem for the police department in Providence, and I guess the police departments of all the municipalities in the state that they're going to have to deal with. Yeah, and, and last year they um, budgeted to have 50 new police officers, but they got so few qualified applicants that they only ended up with 35 in the end. So we'll see what they get from this. From the this state pool. police has run into the same situation, and you mm -hmm. have some going to Massachusetts, although not such a great idea given what's going on in Massachusetts. But what used to be considered a premier job and thousands of people, not that so many people want it anymore. Yeah, I think that's just a, a national problem. But for me, I was more focused on how I felt about the chief watching the interview. I don't think I've ever been inspired by a Providence police chief, but I felt inspired. I felt like he was just very practical. Uh, as Steph said, he can relate to the community and um, really was focused on practical police solutions for the community. And, and, and that actually made me feel safer to be honest. We were also talking about off camera that you were on, you were telling me you were on Broad Street. Right. I, I, I was on Broad Street a couple of months ago and, um, you know, years ago I lived off of Broad Street and I didn't feel safe. 
I would say, even as a black man just walking the streets at night, walking the streets of, uh, of Broad Street, but now this, 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 it looks completely different, uh, feel much safer, and it's, it's just great to see kind of like the revitalization of the community. Is that because you didn't feel safe because you were a Republican? <laughs> <laughs> what else stood out to you in the interview? Um, you know, I think the, um, like Adam said, the recruitment challenges, um, because the, the chief says that they're short-staffed. And when we look at the crime statistics that we just, we just showed you, they are going up. And if the department is short-staffed and they are not able to recruit enough officers to continue that work to get guns off the street and to try to prevent violent crime, those numbers could keep going up. So I'm, that's why I keep such a close eye on them, because we do want to see trends before they become a giant spike. Ideally, 500? Is that what they're yeah, full? Roughly. I think I think ideally five hundred. I think they if he wants sixty officers in this year's academy, that would get them up to about four eighty. The other thing you don't hear about is all the rampaging ATVers. <laughs> Remember Smiley made that Rayner Smiley made that a uh, uh, and you don't hear much about it, but mainly because the word's gone out, Providence is not open for you to ride. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the streets are quieter uh, and, and, and property crime is down, right? Violent crime has been up a little bit, but property crime is down, right? So the statistics kind of point in both directions. Uh, you know, and even the, the uptick in violent crime, you know, it, it follows a, um, a long period of decline in violent crime, right? I think it's, I think if you compare Providence situation in terms of violent crime now to what it was in, let's say, 2005 or 1995, vastly improved. Right? But eight to ten years ago, and you know from being on the east side, you were worried about people breaking into your house right. while you were there. That right. was during yeah. Alors's first term, right? Yeah, Providence is definitively safer than it was decades ago. All right, let's do this. Let's go to uh, outrages and or kudos, and then we may get to a couple other things. Don, what do you have this week? Uh, so, so this is an outrage, and uh, you know, viewers who, who may know me, again, you just mentioned that I'm a Republican, but my outrage is Donald Trump being the Republican nominee, and I just, I can't believe we are, as a, as a party, potentially selecting a person of Donald Trump's character. And I've always hated, I've, I've never voted for Trump, I'll never vote for Trump. Um, I definitely think he deserves the, the right to run. I don't think that he should be barred from running unless he's convicted of a crime. But the fact that we have no one better than Donald Trump, I feel like speaks to a lot of uh, where we are politically. It must be tough for you to watch where your party's gone nationally. It really is. Um, and certainly I've kind of considered where do I want to be? Do I want to stay in the Republican Party or not? And I've been a card-carrying Republican member for like 25 years. Um, Maybe but, the libertarians are beckoning for you. <laughs> you know, it would be nice to have like a moderate party. That would that would be that would be nice. You can talk to Ken Block about that. <laughs> yeah. um, Adam, what do you have? Well, I would give a semi kudos to uh, Stephen Feinberg and the state's uh, motion picture and TV office because just yesterday there was a big event in the state house marking the fact that we're filming yet another Hollywood movie here. Um, I think it's called Ella McKay, starring. Jamie Lee Curtis and Woody Harrelson, who are on site. Um, and, you know, I had a group of students last year do a report about the state's motion picture production tax credit, which is this longstanding issue, whether or not it pays for itself. And I have to say that the, the policy question there is very complicated, and I don't really have a clear sense of it. But certainly, 
um, the motion picture and television office of the state had a big public relations coup uh, yesterday, particularly that, you know, th those clips of Jamie Lee Curtis telling the state of California, hmm. look to Rhode Island, this is how you do it. Yeah. Well, and, and when they had um, Keenan Thompson in for uh, Good Burger, Good Burger too, up yeah. on, what do you have? I mean, the only thing I had space to be outraged about this week was the APRA situation. Um, I won't repeat my rant about why government emails should be free, but uh, they should be, and I hope that the governor waives the fees that they have quoted us for the, our opera to their office. You know, there's also a, a loophole that hopefully they'll close up. They're talking about changes to the public access, public records law, that you can get emails between department heads, but elected officials are exempt. They are exempt under the law. That doesn't mean you can't release their emails. Exactly. They're allowed to withhold emails, and I've requested emails to Governor McKee regarding the bridge. They can withhold them. I hope that they do not. And it's not Dan McKee at, e at gmail.com we're looking for. We're looking for his <laughs> no, government his, account his official, paid for with taxpayer His official dollars. business government account. Yeah. Steph, let me just uh, stay with you quickly. There's been a lot of talk about RIPTA, and we could probably do a whole half-hour show about the funding. The news this week was that they've approved uh, they're going forward with a $17 million transit hub. They're not quite sure where they're going to put it, but this comes from bond money. But at the same time, they're having a hard time balancing their budget. It, it's they're in, they're in a world of hurt over there. Yeah, and I said this actually on another program that I was on. that the You were on another Ro program? Rhode Island. You I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That Rhode Island really needs to decide if they want to run RIPTA like a business or like a public service. Because if you're running it like a business and you're shutting, your, okay, well, then you're looking at demand and you're closing routes based on the fact that people aren't using them. Or is it a public service where people who live in remote or less popular parts of the state still deserve to have public transit and to get places? And yeah, you may run a deficit in order to provide that public service. And it feels like they need to make a decision. The state needs to make a decision about whether they're going to fund RIPTA's deficits in order to provide this public service. That, that makes a lot of sense. What, what, what bothers me is that in this state, if we can make a bad or stupid decision, we will make that decision. And and just following RIPTA, since I've lived in the state for like 28, 29 years, it just makes no sense some of the decisions that they make. You, you to, to Steph's point, you could run RIPTA as a, as a public service and just focus on that. But what just feels uh, just strange to me is just the incompetence of every decision that RIPTA makes. Okay. So there's a couple of things that I, I guess I have questions about. Um, on this, and, and as a RIPTA user, I actually do have a vested interest in this, as, along with many other people in the state. First of all, my understanding is that the $17 million is just for, is, is a contract to just sort of come up with a general plan, right? I mean, the, and, and I and they've I, been coming up for plans with plans for like 10 years. Exactly. Years, I don't really understand. I mean, I am not a transportation policy expert. I thought part of that money was made 400,000 to get the study done or whatever, but the 17 would would cover a lot of the cost and relocation, no? My understanding sure. is that the cost of the actual construction of the facility would be a lot more. So where's that money yeah. going to come from? Right. Yeah, I know. What's, the point? What's the point of relocating? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the thing. So, you know, I personally, you know, again, this is just my personal preference. Um, I, uh, I like uh, changing buses in Kennedy Plaza. You know, let's face it, RIPTA is not always very reliable. Buses are late. There's, there's long wait times between buses. I like being able to hop over to 
Bolt Coffee or The Graduate and get a cup of Joe, you know, as I wait for buses. I don't mind that, you know, um, that it is in that area. You know, I know that the, you know, the downtown had honchos, don't want it to be there. But I think from the perspective of most of the RIPTA users, it's fine. Um, and I don't know why they can't build this new transit hub facility right in Kennedy mm. Plaza. You're part of a very small group of riders. They should be talking to you. <laughs> fewer and fewer riders. They rebuilt that hub I don't know how many times. And I was covering Buddy Cianti's trial in 2002. And I walked with him right by a construction guy because they were redoing it probably the third or fourth time. All right, that is all the time we have for. Sorry, it's a quick show. Adam? And Steph and Don, thank you for coming. Folks, thank you for watching every week. If you can't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we archive all of our shows at ripbs.org slash lively, Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. You never know what's going to happen between now and next week, but we'll be here to cover it as a lively experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.